We're going to continue through the book of Romans, and uh, we're going to read today from Romans chapter 8 and from verse 14. Romans chapter 8 from verse 14. Where here Paul says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's just come and pray together. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for the wonderful words of the song we just sang together. We want to thank you for the richness of your word and what it says to us about where we stand now before you in Christ, that we don't come with fear in our hearts, but we come as we trust in Jesus, as our faith is in him, we come knowing that through him we are welcomed into your family. We are your children, your daughters, your sons, and you love us with an everlasting love. For this we give you our praise now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, who our, our father is, our, our family background, can have an incredible impact on our lives. This isn't insurmountable. Our family backgrounds can be overcome, and, and certainly can be overcome by the Christian. And if we make the wrong choices, if we make the wrong decisions then even the best family background means nothing. But let me just share with you the results of a, a fascinating study that, that was done in the United States that I think illustrates well what I'm trying to say. And it's a story of two families whose roots in the United States can be traced back to New York State back in the early 1700s. When this study started, the father of one of these families was a man called Max Dukes. The father of the other family was Jonathan Edwards, described by one writer I read recently as the greatest philosopher, theologian, yet to grace the American scene. The preacher whose ministry stood at the heart of one of the most wonderful revivals up to date in all of world history, the Great Awakening of 1734 to 35. Though interestingly, I also discovered, by the way, that that didn't stop him being dismissed by the church as their pastor in 1750. Yeah, imagine that, being part of that meeting and making that decision. But listen to this. This is what the study of these two men and their families' descendants uncovered. Max Jukes was an unbelieving man, and he married a woman of like character who lacked principle. Among their known descendants, over 1,200 were studied. 
310 became professional vagrants. 440 physically wrecked their lives by a debauched lifestyle. 130 were sent to jail for an average of 13 years each, seven of them for murder. There were over 100 who became alcoholics, 60 became habitual thieves, 190 public prostitutes. Of the 20 who learned a trade, 10 of them learned that trade in prison. In about the same era, the family of Jonathan Edwards came on the scene. And Jonathan Edwards, a man of God, married a woman of like character. 300 of their descendants became pastors, missionaries, and theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. Another 100 became judges, no, uh, lawyers, sorry. 30 of them judges. 60 of them became doctors. Over a, a, another 60 became authors of critically acclaimed books. 14 became presidents of universities. There were numerous giants of American industry that emerged from this same family. Three became United States congressmen, and one became the vice president of the United States. Now, that's the kind of difference, the kind of impact who our human father is can have on our lives. But you know something? That pales into insignificance in comparison to knowing God as our heavenly father, the influence that that has or should have on our lives. For you see, outside of, of faith in Christ, God's Word tells us that we are the estranged children of God. It tells us that God our Father created us to know us and to love us, but we rebelled against Him. We decided we wanted to live our life independent of Him. We sinned, and that sin raised a barrier between us and our God. But Jesus came to deal with that barrier. He came, God in human flesh, perfect in love, perfect in holiness. He came to deal with our sin, with all the repercussions of our choice to turn our back on God and His ways. And He did that. Jesus did that. As on the cross, He gave His perfect life to deal with the sin that separates us from our Heavenly Father. So as we put our faith in Jesus, we are welcomed back into the family of heaven. We become truly, fully, holy, the children of God, daughters and sons of God. Now, what this passage we're looking at here in Romans focuses in on is the particular ministry, the particular witness of the Spirit in terms of assuring us, of reassuring us that we are the children of God. And there are four different ways I believe we find here that he does this. First, he leads us into holiness. That's what it says. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, it's clear that's what's referred to here, that it relates 
to holiness. That's clear because it flows on from what's said in the previous verse, verse 13, where it says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the, the misdeeds of the body, so it says, you will live. Because, you see, those who are led by the Spirit, those who by the Spirit are led into holiness are sons of God. That's what it says, verse 14. They show by the way that they live that they are part of His family. So you see, things like the fact that we have an awakened, sensitive conscience, that we have an awareness of what's right and wrong in God's sight, the fact that we have a true desire to live our lives in such a way as to please God, and the fact that we are able to live changed lives, not perfect lives, never perfect lives. Indeed, the the new sensitivity to sin that, that God's Spirit brings actually makes us ever more aware of our failings and our shortcomings than we ever were before. But if we, in a sense, if we can stand back and look at our lives and see that, yes, we have changed since we put our faith in Jesus, that we're not perhaps as we should be, that we're not yet what we want to be, but neither are we what we used to be. This brings us an assurance that we are the sons and the daughters of God. There is, though, a point I think it's helpful to make clear here, and that is that the word that in the NIV is translated led, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This, though, is actually a word that in certain circumstances and contexts can actually have about it the idea of force, of almost compulsion. And so one writer, Godet, he writes that there is here something like a notion of holy violence. And others then interpret this in terms of being driven, being driven, that believers are driven by the Spirit of God into holiness, with this giving them assurance that they are God's children. But I, I want to say that this is not the normal sense that this word carries. It's not. Just for example, it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 7 when he's talking about a man who has to have a speck, a splinter of wood removed from his eye. And because of that, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he comments here, here is a man who is going to perform a very delicate eye operation. So if you insist that this word always means force, thrust, drive, then let me express the hope that if you ever have a foreign object in your eye, you may not be treated by such a violent optician. See, see, led, not driven by the Spirit, is the right interpretation, is the natural interpretation in the context, and that fits also best with the whole context of the ministry 
of the Holy Spirit. For as I'm sure you've heard it said, most of you, the Holy Spirit is not a bully. He is a gentleman. I mean, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 4.30, that we can grieve the Spirit. You cannot grieve a bully. You can only grieve a gentle, sensitive spirit. But this does, though, have important practical implications. It does, because you see, the Holy Spirit will not force you, will not drive you to be holy. And if you're waiting for that sort of to just happen, then you're going to wait, let me tell you, for a long time. And if you are resting your, your spiritual assurance, the fact that you're God's child on this happening, then you're going to live, because of that, I think, often a fear-filled, doubt-filled Christian life. Rather, the Holy Spirit leads you into holiness. That is, the Spirit awakens in you the desire to be holy. The Holy Spirit then makes available to you all the spiritual resources that you need to be holy. But you then need to choose holiness. You need to make the decision to be holy. You need to answer the Spirit's call to holiness. You need to lay hold of all the resources the Spirit makes available for holiness. And it's as you do this that you receive the assurance of the Spirit that you are a child of God. The second strand of this assurance that the Spirit brings that we're children of God is that He frees us from fear. Verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, or more technically in, in past times, the spirit of adoption. We know fear. Fear is a, a terrible thing. It's probably the most crippling of all human emotions. And so many people today do live in fear, and many of them live in fear of God. Fear of falling short of Him. Fear of rejection by Him. Fear one day of His judgment. It is a terrible thing, fear. And you know, the fear of being rejected and alone, isolated and vulnerable, I think that's the, the worst kind of fear of all. And just one example, uh, a minister, a colleague of mine a number of years ago who just moved to a new church, he talked and shared of one day driving past the school that his little six-year-old boy had been out only for a fortnight, and it happened to be playtime, and all the children were out in the playground running around and, and laughing and playing. But there was his little boy standing all on his own in the corner of the playground, the new boy with no friends. And you could imagine, I'm sure you can imagine, the kind of fear and apprehension that little boy would probably feel every day as playtime or lunchtime approached. He maybe wouldn't have been able to put it into words, but it would have been there. And no wonder that father said that as he drove away that day, his heart was breaking. But you see, outside of Jesus Christ, so many people do live in fear 
of God. And so almost every religion in this world, except for Christianity, is about doing something of some kind that will make you acceptable to God. But that's misguided. It doesn't work. And I also want to tell you that without faith in Christ, we should be afraid. We should be afraid. Not to be afraid is the result of ignorance and foolishness and spiritual blindness because our sin does leave us separated from God. It does leave us rejected and alone and facing judgment. We should fear. But here is the good news of the gospel. As we put our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. Through Jesus, we become part of the family of heaven. And the Holy Spirit witnesses in our heart, in our spirit, reassures us deep within that we are God's children. That we're no longer alone. We are part of God's family. Let's just be clear, though, about the the word adoption. I'm sure we've all seen, probably many times, the film Ben-Hur great book as well, where the the ill-treated Jewish galley slave, Ben-Hur, rescues a rich and powerful Roman, and is then, because of that, adopted as his son, with all of this man's wealth and power and prestige being passed on straight away to this adopted son. Well, you know, this actually reflects very accurately, much much more so than is the case with a lot of Hollywood films, just what the ancient Roman custom and practice actually was. F.F. F. Bruce, he remarks here that the term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, but in the Roman world of the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. So you see, the use of the term adoption in the Bible is the Bible's way of saying that as we put our faith in Christ, We are, as we've said, restored again back into God's family. And more than that, we have been specifically chosen by the Father. Chosen, not because of any special worth or or merit that we have, but because in some way that's beyond our knowing, we fit into God's purposes for His world. And this, again, is the assurance the Holy Spirit brings us. The third strand of this assurance lies in that He assures us of God's fatherhood. Verse 15 and 16. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we connect this with what we just looked at there, then it's pretty clear what's being said here that the spirit of adoption we've received, the Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirit 
that we are God's children. So then enabling us to cry, Abba, Father. That is bringing us, therefore, into a level of intimacy with God, and particularly intimacy in prayer, that for all but the Christian is unimaginable. For you see, the word Abba translated into our language and usage, it's a family term for father. You've maybe heard it said that the nearest equivalent is our daddy. In fact, that might be just a little bit too informal because there are two ingredients that are really found and combined in Abba. That is affection and respect. And Daddy maybe just swings it a wee bit too far to the affection side. And I read one somewhere that something like dearest father maybe captures better what Abba is intended to communicate. I, I don't know about it. It still sounds a, a bit formal this time to me. I don't think my children ever have or ever will call me dearest father. They've called me or not. But anyway, we'll not go into that. But you catch the gist, don't you? I hope you do of what's being communicated here. And this is unique to Christianity. Unique. This kind of intimacy with God was unknown before the time of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, who's an expert on biblical background, he, he says of this here that Abba was an everyday word. It was a homely family word. No Jew would ever have dared to address God in this manner. But Jesus did it always, in all his prayers which are handed down to us, with one single exception. The cry from the cross. So what we're talking about here then is that as we come to God trusting in Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, and as we then come to God in prayer, as we cry out to Him in prayer as our Father, that as we do this and are in right relationship, that the Holy Spirit will bring to our hearts an intense and joyous assurance that God indeed is our Father. He is our Abba, that we are the children of God. Now, I have to say here that because we're all so different in temperament and because all of us are affected in life to some degree by the different circumstances and experiences we go through, so maybe that the degree of, to which and the number of times we know that kind of joyous assurance of God's fatherhood as we pray, that will vary and maybe vary greatly. But, you know, I, I think we need to be clear here about this. If we never know something of this, then we have a problem. Spiritually, there's something wrong somewhere. Maybe in our understanding of who God is, the love He has for us. Maybe in the, the low level of our spiritual expectation. Maybe we've never really understood that God wants us to know Him in that way. Or perhaps there's unrepented of sin in our life that's grieving the Spirit and so quenching the work of the Spirit in us. Whatever it is, though, if we don't at some time in our lives have this kind of joyous, intimate, and intense assurance that God is our Father. He is our Abba. We are His children. If we don't have this, then we have a spiritual problem and we need 
to deal with it because we are living spiritually at a level that is significantly below what's God's will and intention for His children. The fourth strand of this spiritual assurance the Holy Spirit brings that we're the children of God is that He guarantees our inheritance. Guarantees our inheritance. Now, verse 17 says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Now, here you see Paul's coming at things from a, a slightly different angle. What he's saying here is that if we have trusted in Christ, if by faith in Him we have become children of God, part of the family of God, and if we then, as we surely will, have experienced because of this the blessings that go along with that, what we've looked at already today just being part of that blessing, well then, we know that this blessing, what we experience of God in this life, that this is only the first fruits, the down payment on what is to come. For we are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We share together all the blessings of Christ, all the blessings won by Jesus Christ are going to be experienced by us. Now, I have to say, I don't think that this kind of expectation, this kind of anticipation of, of heaven and its spiritual riches is as pronounced among Christians today as it should be and, and as it perhaps was among Christians of earlier generations, which for me suggests at least two possibilities. The poverty of our present spiritual experience, and the fact that we've been deceived and beguiled by this world we live in, with the two being, I think, very much interconnected. For you see, if we have a rich experience now of God as our Father, and all of these blessings that come along with that, if that was our experience, then we would be living with an, with an assurance, with an expectation of all the blessing that is to come. And that then would in turn transform our life, our values, our priorities in the here and now. You see, the problem too often is that we have been beguiled. We have been deceived by this world we live in. For we live today in a materialistic, self-centered, pleasure-obsessed world. And this has had an impact, as it must, on the Christian and on the church. And so, so often we are so focused on trying to build a kind of heaven on earth for ourselves, like the rest of society around us. We're so focused on this at times that we leave little space for God in our lives, little room for His blessing. And without this, you see, if we are not experiencing God at work in His grace and power in our lives, in this life, day by day, if we're not experiencing that, then we will have 
a limited expectation of and longing for the life to come. Now, Paul then finishes this verse, finishes this section with what I would, I suppose, really see as the test of where our heart is, where we lie with what we've looked at. And he says, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. But you see, what, what this is saying is that a willingness to suffer in this life a willingness to stand with Christ in this life, in His earthly sufferings, that this shows an understanding of the priority of the spiritual. This shows that we understand that this life is just a preparation for the eternal, that this life is actually what is passing, and that it's what is to come that really matters. You see, a Christian who is willing, not eager. We don't seek out suffering. We don't want to be afflicted by that which is rooted in sin and in evil. But the Christian who is willing to suffer for Christ in this world, that Christian shows by this, demonstrates by this, that they have the correct life focus. The Christian, though, who is unwilling not who finds it difficult because no one who's right-minded should find suffering easy, but the Christian who is unwilling to suffer and who, if suffering comes their way, feels that it's unjust, it shouldn't be this way for them, that God has let them down, this Christian demonstrates by this, this attitude, that their life focus is all wrong. Now, let me finish here with the story of a, a Christian who, in this context, I, I really find inspirational. Probably the greatest Japanese Christian, but a man whose story is not that well known among Christians in the West. Toyohiko Kagawa. You can tell me later, Leo, if I got that pronunciation right. But this man, while he was a, a young boy, he was influenced by an American Presbyterian missionary, a Dr. Harry Myers. And he learned the Sermon on the Mount by heart. And age 15, he was baptized. This led to him being disowned and disinherited by his family. On Christmas Day, 1909, age 21, he moved out of Kobe Theological Seminary, wheeling all his worldly possessions in a handcart, in order to live among the poor in the terrible Shinkawa slum. His windowless shack measured only six feet by six feet, yet he was ready to share it with anyone who needed care and shelter, and sometimes several at a time. He lived on two bowls of rice gruel a day and wore the same ragged suit for several years. Unsurprisingly, he was often ill. He was also misunderstood, maligned, and attacked, but he never retaliated, and he never gave in. He began to take up various causes of social injustice in Japan, dockers and peasant farmers who were oppressed, and this led to him being dubbed an agitator and imprisoned, arrested and imprisoned. 
but stung by its writing. The government in Japan declared its, its, its intention to abolish the slums in Japan's six largest cities. And all the time along this, he was involved at the same time in evangelism. He had a fantastic vision of one million Japanese Christians being found in that country, evangelicals. Before the war, he was arrested four times for what was termed subversive peace propaganda. But after the Second World War, the Japanese Prime Minister appealed to him. Only Jesus Christ was able to love his enemies. Help me to put the love of Jesus Christ into the hearts of our people. And the emperor of Japan gave him a half-hour private audience in which to explain the meaning of the cross. Now, this is what is said of him by his biographer, William Acklin. And this is what he gathered from people who knew him. He visited the sick. He comforted the sorrowing. He fed the hungry. He lodged the homeless. He became an elder brother to the prostitutes, visiting them when they were ill and providing them with medicine. Parents turned to him for advice. Young people brought him their tangled life problems. Criminals made him their father confessor. The children swarmed around him. And this is what Kagwa said of his Christian faith. He said, I'm grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, and for Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths. A spirit of reverence that I have an insatiable craving for values which transcend this earthly life. Yet these three faiths utterly failed to minister to my heart's deepest need. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Tears were my meat day and night. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has declared, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Only Jesus Christ. Do you know what Kagwa's favorite hymn was? Jesus, keep me near the cross. Don't you think that this was a man who knew God as his father? Who had that inner witness of the Spirit? That this was a man who knew that the real glory was to come? And so who lived on this earth, focused on the spiritual and the eternal, rather than on himself and his pleasure. And so what a life he lived. What wonderful things God achieved through him. What an influence he was. Now, we won't all achieve what Kagwa did. We won't. But I tell you this. God is ready to give of His Spirit in exactly the same way to us. And He does want to use us, each one of us, to be an influence for Him where we are. God, by His Spirit, wants to lead us into holiness, wants to free us from fear, wants to assure us that He is our Father 
and wants us to know our inheritance is guaranteed. God wants to do it for each one of us. And He will do it if only our hearts and our lives are turned and opened to Him. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank You for just the, the richness and the glory of Your intention for the Christian experience of each one here who knows You. You don't want the Christian life to be something that's boring. You don't want it to be a matter of routine or ritual, but you want it to be the richest relationship imaginable with you. You want us to know in our hearts the joy that we are your children. You want to lead us into ministries that make a difference in this world. And you want us to know, because of the relationship we have with you now, the assurance of all that is to come, of all that is ours in Jesus. Father, we thank you and bless you for the Christian life that you give to your people through faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.